Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Paul Spohr. Paul is a writer at Fangraphs and Rotowire. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Spore. that's S-P-O-R-E-R. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Ross. I really appreciate it. Well, this is going to be the first ever replacement-level podcast fantasy baseball episode, so no one better to have on than you. But before we get into some of the fantasy stuff, tell me what got you into baseball in general in the first place. Boy, I've been a baseball fan literally for as long as I can remember. And I know you know a lot of people say that, but uh, I, I, I do not have recollection of a time where I was not a baseball fan growing up just outside of Detroit, 15 minutes away from Tiger Stadium. Uh, went a handful of times every year. And uh, 1989, 88, my dad and his coworkers started a fantasy league. And that, that, was, that was a turning point. I wasn't in the league yet. I was too young. But following the league and, and, and kind of, you know, rooting for both my parents' teams and pouring over the stats, that took the baseball fandom to the next level. I'd collected baseball cards, watched games, but but fantasy baseball really took it to the next level. I eventually got to be in that league. And, I mean, that's just solidified my, my baseball love, uh, you know, for, forever at this point. Does that league still exist today? It sure does. And um, I kind of I dominate the league, which is great because – Early on, my dad dominated. My mom's in the league, and she has three titles of her own. Um, and, you know, they held them over my head for a long time. And then I've won five out of six. So I actually passed both of them, my mom with three, my dad with four. So now I'm the leader, and, and that, that feels good. But it took it was an uphill climb of them constantly beating me. I'm curious how being interested in baseball and fantasy baseball transitioned into writing for fantasy baseball for a living. I mean, once, you know, once the Internet started taking off with it, I had little, you know, kind of pick them up here gigs uh, for, uh, for quite a while now at this point, probably as early, early 2000s. I was on a message board called Roto Junkie. It, it still exists, but not in its, its prime form um, where I really got into baseball discussion and, and learning about stats and and kind of figuring out how to think deeper about the game. And that was a big piece of my baseball life as well. And I started uh, publishing my top 100 pitcher lists there actually what it was was a guy posted his and i would post a critique to to his kind of going almost pitcher by pitcher basically disagreeing with with what he had and i said well if i'm just going to do this i might as well make my own list you know why not and uh, that was actually the birth of the starting pitcher guide which is on hiatus for 2017 but i'd been doing since 2003 through 2016 and it evolved from a message board post to a blog post to the uh, full-fledged PDF that it, w- that it was last year and will be again in 2018. Uh, and that's really where I learned to think critically about the game and, and start learning about stats. Red Moneyball became obsessed with it, kind of a, kind of a stereotype in, in that instance. But uh, I absolutely love that stuff. doesn't mean I necessarily blindly agree with every bit of it. And I think that, that too often we kind of have the two camps of, of stats and not stats. I love stats, but you got to watch the games, too, and I think that that's a huge part. So I just became so interested in it, uh, picking up little gigs here and there, that uh, eventually I tried to make it my my, my profession. I, I worked at Dell for six years. There was a layoff. I took a shot to try to make it my, my career then. It didn't work. Had to get back into the into the job market. They could tell that I probably wasn't 
putting my best foot forward there. So they fired me, which I uh, actually appreciate because then I gave it a second try with baseball. And, and that's that's how we got to today, where I'm now the editor of uh, the, the Rotograph side of Fangrass, which is their fantasy arm. And uh, I've been doing baseball for a living now for this is my fifth year. You obviously do baseball for a living. It's something you get paid to do, but you also play fantasy baseball for fun, too. You mentioned your family league earlier, but what are your ideal settings and roster size for a league that you like to be in? I like the 15-team setup uh, for a mixed league draft, what mixed league meaning AL and NL, and then the kind of the standard uh, roster setup that, that is kind of accepted as, as, as the gold standard is two catchers, first, second, third, short, corner infielder which is first third middle which is second short five outfielders uh, a utility slash dh um some leagues make you get like a dh qualified person i like it just being a utility any any player goes there and then nine pitchers however you want them um i like that setup as far as auctions i love auctions auctions are amazing i actually like that same roster setup but for an AL or NL, not 15 teams, of course, that would that would get way too thin. But for like a 10-team AL or a 10-team NL, that same roster setup, I really like auctions like that. So I like mixed league drafts and then single league auctions. Those are probably my, my two favorite ways, but still with that same roster both both times. Yeah, and do you like standard 5x5? Five five? What kind of scoring settings do you use? I do. Um, you know, I used to kind of be on the train of we got to get rid of the win and go to quality start because it more accurately re- reflects this. And, you know, we got to go from OB- from average to OBP. And I'm not against those. I will play in leagues with I do play in leagues with with, with both of those, in fact. But I think I'm, I'm completely OK with the parameters and not necessarily emulating value. Right. Because when you when you go to OBP, you're it starts to favor the power hitters again. And they're already favored with homers, runs, RBIs, and even batting average, I guess, because a, a home run is is a piece of batting average. But these big sluggers accounting for their walks, I understand that it'd be nice to account for walks because it is, it is a skill uh, in the game. But I, I kind of like the 5x5 five five setup because it accounts for the different pockets of, of skill players out there. If you take away batting average, you really have a hard time getting D. Gordon too much value outside of his stolen bases, especially with stolen bases dwindling. And wins, I understand that they're fluky and it can be nauseating to watch your guy go seven strong, give up one run, and be down one nothing when he leaves so he's not going to get a W. But that's that's part of why we play. No matter what you do, it's all just parameters in which we w- with which we play. So I don't think they necessarily need to perfectly emulate uh, what gets to the heart of like war or something. So I am actually completely comfortable and 100% fine with the standard 5 by 5 setup. Yeah, and it's interesting, and I tell people this all the time, is that there are players in real life who are more valuable than they are in fantasy, and there are players in fantasy who are much more valuable than there are in real life, and it's a game, and it's meant to be fun. I do like using OBP, and I do like using quality starts. I like quality starts because it gets rid of the vulture wins from relievers. You have the reliever who comes in, and he blows the save. He gives up two runs, but then the team scores three in the bottom of the ninth, and he gets a win. I hate that so much, so I do like that it gets rid of that. And I like that you can have two pitchers facing each other and get a quality start from both. 
I like OBP. I like save holds combined. I think that adds more value to relievers, and I think it's a, it's a more accurate description as, as to how relievers are used in real baseball, and it's fun that somebody like Andrew Miller gets traded and still retains his value in a save hold league. And um, exactly. So I like that as well, but standard 5x5 five five is fun. I like to add OBP, and I like to add quality starts, and I like to add save holds, and one thing I'm trying this year is net steals as well, which isn't a big difference, but I think that's more fun too, or at least has the potential to be. And that is definitely fun. Like, I, again, I agree with all of that. I have no problem playing in any of those formats. Net steals is really interesting. Do you get the, the super volume guy who maybe doesn't have a good rate? Look at like a Cesar Hernandez last year was 17 for 30. That's pretty horrible. Um, and then, you know, you got guys out there. Chase Utley in his heyday was known for being efficient. He wasn't necessarily going to get you 30 stolen bases, but he might get you 18 on 19 attempts. And that would make him a better asset, uh, even if it was, you know, uh, 12 on 12 attempts it would be better than than what uh what somebody like cesar hernandez did last year again going 17 for 30 so I, I i'm completely with you in terms of enjoying those different setups and and i think that uh that's that's the best part is that you can play it so many different ways and it does change the value pool and i, and I like that giving different player types different values i fully agree on on trying to find a way to give relievers more value and the hold does that it's not a perfect stat either that's okay we don't need perfect stats we just need to understand the parameters and with with which we're playing and then adjust that way and no matter what you do there's going to be players like brandon belt who's just more valuable in real life than he is in fantasy absolutely and jason hayward who is more valuable in real life and kevin kiermeyer especially defensive guys and there's going to be guys like d gordon and billy hamilton who because of stolen bases have a lot of value in fantasy that that value does not project the same way in real life. And that's okay as long as everyone's still having a fun time doing their league. Absolutely. I, again, I couldn't agree more. Um, I do like that. I, I often use that phrase, you know, this guy's a much better fantasy player than real life or vice versa. And again, that's okay. You, you, you just adjust and accordingly. Ben Revere does not have a lot of uh, real life utility anymore, certainly not to the level that he did in his heyday. But I think this year getting playing time for the Angels as a base stealer, again, with their rarity, uh, he, could be, he could be quite an asset this year in fantasy, especially because he's going so cheap. So tell me about your basic strategy going into a draft. First off, I'm, I'm somebody that um, I don't always have some guaranteed plan where i have to target x y and z um, or, or or targeting a certain number for for every category because i projections obviously are inherently flawed and i understand the value of them and i respect the work that people put into them especially those that make their own system um but i i will go in i i, I will have maybe a couple guys that i want to get uh maybe on the high end couple in the middle maybe a, a few late guys as well and I'm not afraid to, to quote unquote, get my guys. That's something that I've definitely uh, shown over the years that I'm not afraid to do. I don't care about average draft position. First off, it's right there in the first word that it's average. And, and so it doesn't necessarily mean anything uh, to the sig- single draft that you're in. If somebody's average draft position is 65, but he has a high of 41 and a low of 98, you got to rely on on nine other uh, or 14 other guys and gals that you're playing with to to keep them at that 65 for that average draft position to matter. So instead, I have kind of my valuations of how I feel. Again, not with hard projections. It's kind of more of a gut thing. I study the player pool all winter, so I feel like I have a good eye of, of value. And if I feel comfortable taking a guy at a certain spot, 
then that's that's fine with me, even if their ADP suggests otherwise. So I kind of get my guys. I take what the draft will give me. Um, I do like to stack offense this year. I'm looking first four picks usually are going to be offense. Then I'll shift over to pitcher um, and maybe get my first guy there. And then I'm playing a lot in that middle tier of pitcher. Um, but like, like I said, I don't have – a hundred percent set strategy going into any single draft it kind of depends on draft slot and what what the other uh competitors are going to give me if i'm on a wheel if i'm on uh, the front or back end and i where you get those two quick picks i do like to uh target a couple top relievers say around the fifth or sixth round and i will do something like a uh, kenley jansen zach Britton to really establish myself with, with relievers i'm less inclined to do that say if i'm in the middle because if in the middle of the fifth round i take kenley jansen and i start a a closer run then by the time it gets back to me maybe the best one left is Wade Davis and there's really you know I'm not against Wade Davis but kind of the part of that strategy is to get the two studs or to just wait until the middle so there are different little strategies that I'll employ kind of based on where I'm picking and what the draft is giving me but for the most part it's a feel thing uh, outside of a handful of guys that, that that I've been kind of targeting regularly this year usually on the pitching side because that is my primary focus with my writing uh, as I mentioned my SP guide that I used to do uh, on hiatus this year that I, I study the pitcher pool as so much more than than the hitting pool. Obviously, I know who's who's uh, going to be hitting for everybody, but the pitching pool, pitching is really what I'll enjoy studying, and so that's where I'll target guys. You know, James Paxton, somebody I really like this year. I'll bump him up. Kevin Gossman, somebody that I'm seeing a breakout from. So, um, yeah, it, it's more of a general strategy, nothing set in stone, but uh, outside of maybe targeting a few guys that I really want. I go into it with a similar philosophy, and my big thing, regardless if it's an auction draft or a snake draft, is I take the best player available, whoever I determine that to be. I don't worry about positions until I have to. I have no problem taking a first baseman, three out of my four picks if my roster size allows for it. If I can get Goldschmidt, Cabrera, and someone else, it doesn't bother me. I just take most production, best player I can, until I have to worry about positions, and that's usually works out for me. But that's always my philosophy going into any draft, is just take the best player until you no longer can. It's always so weird that some folks want to keep their corner, middle, um, and utility open for later, expecting some great prize to fall to them. And I understand for the utility piece, you want to have some flexibility if you have to move somebody. But for the example that you just gave there, you could be at the back end of a draft, let's say a 12-teamer, you get the 11th pick, you could feasibly get Miguel Cabrera and Anthony Rizzo. Now, I don't see any reason not to take both of those guys. You have... Three spots that you can put them, first corner and DH uh, or slash utility. So why wouldn't you take them? So many folks, I, I think, are reluctant to fill that corner and middle early when they're just regular spots as well. They're, they're, I don't think it's anything special that you need to hold off on filling. If you got a spot for a guy and he's a stud, take him. And so I fully agree with you there. If for some reason I had a situation where I could go, you know, Jose Altuve, Trey Turner. And right now, Trey Turner's second in outfield, and you know, then I stack my outfield, and I have to move him to middle. That's fine. It's a position like any other. I don't think the positions are necessarily ranked 
Uh, I understand there's scarcity in some of them, particularly catcher and even first base a little bit this year, if I'm being honest. But I, I don't think that the middle spot is less valuable or should be filled with a lesser guy than your starting second baseman or shortstop. So I completely agree with you in terms of the best player available, especially early on. You get those first 10 players and then you can kind of start strategizing. That's part of the reason that I don't necessarily like guys like D. Gordon, though, and Billy Hamilton is because you do have to alter your draft from that point. When you take them in the third, fourth round, uh, now you have to focus on power and maybe take a guy that you, you didn't necessarily want to take him here, but you got to balance out that power. So you're bumping up a Kyle Schwarber or a Mark Trumbo just to kind of offset where you're at. I like having kind of more of a balanced approach, like I said, through those first 10 picks and then the final 14 or, or 13, I can start to kind of figure out how I want this team to come together. That's the uh, Adam Dunn, Juan Pierre conundrum. I used to end yes. up with both guys and it's like, I feel like if you had one, you had to get the other and you don't want to be in that position. Now it's D Gordon and Chris Carter. Yeah, exactly right. And if your team has D Gordon and Chris Carter in the starting lineup, that's probably not the best team in the league. Let's put it that way. That's right. Let's look at each position, some guys that might break out, some guys you're avoiding in the draft, or at least who you think might be getting drafted a little too high. At catcher, who do you like? Who do you dislike? I don't really like many catchers, as I mentioned. I think it is a pretty scarce position. That doesn't mean I'm going to jump up for the best, though, to be honest. I am going to play in that middle tier, though. I don't like to get too, too late. Um, I do think Gary Sanchez is being overdrafted a little bit. I know he had an amazing two months and he looks like he has all the tools to be a stud, but as a pick 50, I think that's a bit crazy. Going ahead of Jonathan Lucroy when he has two good months under his belt, that seems insane to me. If you want a, if you want a high upside catcher that uh, is still probably maybe maybe being overdrafted a little bit as well, but still has that colossal upside. Look at Wilson Contreras going 40 picks after Gary Sanchez. I think if you want that that high upside young catcher, I would go with Contreras over Gary Sanchez. Um, in the middle, you know, a Steven Vogt, I, I, I think he's just solid. He's not great, but when he when he's healthy, he plays well. He's not a big-time health guy, though, and he is a little bit of an older guy in terms of his breakout. You know, he's only been around for a few years, but it took a while. He was a late bloomer. So, uh, But I like, I like that tier where, like, Stephen Vogt's going, Cameron Rupp, Tom Murphy, although be careful of Tony Walters in Colorado. I don't think Tom Murphy is guaranteed the spot, even though he's going much higher than than uh, than Walters. I am looking at Colorado catchers, though. Wellington Castillo, I think, is a perfectly solid guy that you can put in. He's going to go out to Baltimore. So I, again, I'm 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 in that 11 to uh, 17 range of catcher right now. If you're looking at the NFBC uh, average draft data, and I'm kind of working there at the high end. I have taken Evan Gaddis because he's 30 homer potential at, at catcher after pick 100, and I do like that. I know playing time looks like a little bit of a crunch, but rarely do we ever see a guy with his power bat not find their playing time, and, and things happen. Carlos Beltran is a million years old. I love him. I hope he stays healthy and plays 150 this year, but am I am I betting on that? Absolutely not. We don't know what Ulyeski Guriel really is, and he too is a little bit older, coming in at 33 or 34, so I think Evan Gaddis will get his playing time, so I do like him on the high end, but I'm not messing with the Posey, Sanchez, or even Lucro, even though I do like him. Uh, I'm not messing with that tier of catcher this year first base a guy who i think is overdrafted is eric hosmer i think he's overrated in real oh, life too. god yes people are taking him in the top 100 they're taking him in some cases over jose abreu over hanley ramirez over chris davis over pool even over adrian gonzalez these guys outproduce hosmer almost every year 
utterly insane how overrated Hosmer is. And I'm curious to see if he's going to be overrated in the market next year when he comes off a of free agency, assuming he has just his solid, unspectacular year that we've seen recently. Now, if he busts out, it changes the game. So so you don't don't timestamp this and try to make Ross and I look silly if he goes out and hits 35 homers with a 290 average this year. It'll be a different player. But as it currently stands, I don't see any reason that he should be going over those guys. I completely agree with you. I am a little I have a little bit of trepidation with Will Myers as well. I love Will Myers. I was I was beating the Will Myers drum last year. Go get him. This guy's talented. He's going so cheaply. And and he panned out. Obviously, it was awesome. I never expected 28-28 on the homers and stolen bases. But now he's up to pick 56 and we've only seen one healthy season and even last year wasn't fully healthy he had some nagging stuff that he played through that kind of tanked his numbers toward the end i think he still only hit like 260 in this breakout year i'd be dubious of, of a first baseman ba- whose whose value is heavily based on steals as well i know paul goldschmidt has shown that he's been able to do it for the last several years but anthony rizzo had that spike and then fell off joey Votto has dabbled in it will myers could be somebody who just wanted to show that he could go almost 30 30 and then maybe Maybe this year it kind of meanders back to more of a, a 25 homer, 12 stolen base sort of guy. And if he still is only hitting 260 something, that's not really worth the 56th pick. So I'd be careful with Will Myers as well. Yeah, and a guy who's deep if you have a bigger bench is Cody Bellinger. He's coming in, uh, you know, 31, 32 ranks among first basemen. I actually think he's going to be up by May 1st. I think he's going to have outfield eligibility as well, and I think he's going to hit right Bingo. away. So there's a guy who, if you can keep somebody on your bench for even just a month, I think he's going to make an impact right away. A great call on the outfield piece. This guy's super athletic. A lot of times with um, with first base prospects, you got to be careful with them. First off, it, it, that's kind of an oxymoron. You don't see a lot of first base prospects because it's so far down the defensive spectrum. He's just there right now because they haven't necessarily uh, put him in the outfield. They've been able to kind of hide, not hide him, but just put him at first base to kind of keep him upright and let him dominate with his bat for Cody Bellinger. But he does have the capability to actually play all three outfield spots. That's the athleticism that he has. Scouts at Arizona Folly were raving about Cody Bellinger. I absolutely love him as well. Definitely keep him on your radar because the outfield could be uh, where he gets his playing time. And plus, Adrian Gonzalez has been a stalwart, but he's also getting up there in age, too. So he's not even a guarantee, though I would say I'd still pencil him in for a buck 40. And then outfield again is where I'm going to see Cody Bellinger slide in. I agree completely. Second base, who do you like? Who do you dislike? Second base is super deep this year if you're playing in a mixed league. So I have no problem waiting on it. There's plenty. In, I, I like the upper tier. I'm not against even getting like a Jose Altuve in the first round. Robinson Cano early on. Trey Turner, as I mentioned earlier, he's going to be second outfield and then get shortstop eligibility very early on. Got no problem with those guys. But if you don't get one of those three, I'm definitely waiting. Um, Jonathan Scope's a guy I've enjoyed uh, watching him kind of develop as a power asset at second base i think logan forsyth setting the table with the with the aforementioned dodgers is going to be impressive and then a late one for you guys playing in in probably at least 12 teams maybe 15 teams or higher Joe Panic's going to bounce back this year. If you look at his skills, there was no reason that he should have had such a terrible batting average. I know he suffered a concussion, but even before that, it looked like he was suffering some bad luck uh, with his batting average on balls in play. The dude makes tons of contact. It's usually solid contact. He's going to hit closer to 300 this year as opposed to the 240 or whatever that he hit last year. I really like Joe Panic out in San Francisco. 
I like Devin Travis in Toronto. I think he'd be hitting leadoff for that lineup, that he should get a lot of runs, and he's a productive hitter if he can stay healthy. I like Pedroia where he's going. He's going around 100. I think there's a lot of value to be had there with him. I'm avoiding Brian Dozier, though. I, I, he's coming off such a monster year. I don't think he's going to do that again. He's going getting picked in the 30s. I think that's way too high for him. I agree. And I, and I like Dozier and it was an awesome season, especially because he fronted the league two months. You know, he said, here's two months of nothingness, kind, kind of mediocrity to, to bad. Uh, and I'm still going to go out and dominate because his last four months were so great. So I just can't take him at pick 37 on average right now. I'd rather take Daniel Murphy going right after him. Or like you said, wait on guys, the veterans, Kinsler, Pedroia, they're solid investments still too. DJ LeMahieu out in Colorado, probably not going to hit 340 again, but he saw again, and we could na- we could go five six more names each probably at second base. It's very deep this year, so if you don't get one of those superstars, Altuve, Turner, Cano, just wait. Third base is extremely top heavy. Who do you like? Who do you dislike in that field? I do like the whole first round tier there: Bryant, Arenado, Machado, and Donaldson. Arenado is actually my number two off the board behind Mike Trout right now. Uh, just love what he's able to do, and he still plays in Coors. People want to knock him for Coors doesn't make any sense until he stops playing there. And there's no uh, end in sight for him playing there. They were dealt a blow with Ian Desmond uh, getting hit in the hand yesterday, which is a huge bummer because he definitely would have been one of my picks in the outfield for this exercise that we're doing. Um, So I like that top tier. But if not, I've got no problem waiting. Again, the, a, a thick middle tier here. You got guys like Anthony Rendon, Mike Michael Franco, Jake Lamb is going to be my my main guy here, though. Jake Lamb and Ryan Healy, one for AL, one for NL. They're kind of going in that similar range, right around or just after pick one fifty. And they both have interesting upside. Jake Lamb had an amazing season last year. You could probably call that his breakout. And and a hand injury that lingered. He still played, but but it lingered. Uh, kind of hampered him during the final two months of the season. But there's 35 homer power in Jake Lamb's bat in an amazing park. I don't think Arizona gets enough run as a great ballpark. And then Ryan Healy, not playing in a great ballpark, but still showed a lot of power upside with a, with a couple months stint with Oakland. And I really like what he's able to do. He kind of reminds me of a Stephen Pascal who who changed himself college bat who is solid but unspectacular then changed himself a little bit to to uh, unlock a little bit more power and instead of being like a bland 275 hitter uh, or even like a 285 hitter with not as much power they kind of said you know what i'll be a 270 hitter uh but i'm gonna hit 25 plus homers and and both of them have made those changes i like both those guys healy and piscotti and they're kind of similar so i like healy and jake lamb at third base and Rendon was a 20 home run, 10 stolen base guy last year. That's very valuable in fantasy. I like the power potential of Franco and of Sano as well. I think both of those guys will be much improved from last year. Michael Franco is a major breakout candidate, um, and I, he's a little bit higher than Lamb and Healy, but I have no problem taking him. In fact, if I don't have third base and corner filled, right around the time that somebody like Franco's going, I'm doing a Franco-Lamb combination or or getting a couple of Franco-Lamb, Nick Castellanos in Detroit. Uh, I think Mike Moustakis, as long as we are getting reports that the knee is healthy, he could jump out because his power really took a big jump in 2015. And he carried it over for the, like, the 25 games that he was able to play before he got hurt. So th- there's some interesting power depth at third base. How about a shortstop? Who do you like? Who do you dislike? 
Shortstop, not quite as deep as second and third, but but has some depth to it. And and it's weird to say that about middle. We're in a we're in a middle infield. We're in an infield renaissance right now, where there's a lot of star power. My guy is still Addison Russell. This was a, my big breakout pick last year, and he didn't quite come to fruition. Although I'm not gonna cry about 21 homers and 95 uh, RBIs. Batting average is next to come, and this is a guy who does tinker with his game and is always thinking about how to get better and how pitchers are attacking him. My colleague at Fangraphs, Eno. Saris has had a lot of conversations with him and they've been illuminating to, to kind of learn how Addison Russell thinks about the game. Defense guarantees his playing time and this is a guy who I believe is going into his age 23 season already with two full seasons of baseball under his belt on an amazing team, already has a World Series. That That's a little bit of an intangible sort of stuff, but I like a guy who's only going to be 23 years old who has over 1,000 plate appearances already. So Addison Russell is my guy. He was my guy last year. I am not deterred at all and I still think he's going at a pretty fair price at pick 134. Yeah, I like Jose Peraza this year as a deep sleeper. He's a guy that could steal 40 bases. He should be hitting leadoff for the Reds. I mean, he's got Votto behind him. That should help his runs. If he's a guy that can hit 280 with 40 stolen bases and 85 runs, that's mega production there for where he's going in the draft. Lots of potential value there. His his sleeper status took a hit when Brandon Phillips finally accepted a deal. But Jose Peraza is still a guy that you're not having to pay top dollar for. And he could be this year's D Gordon without paying D Gordon price. Outfielders. Outfielders, I feel like we're so excited about Mike Trout and what Bryce Harper did a few years ago. But in general, outfield is thin. Thank you for acknowledging that outfield is thin. It almost it, it is almost every year, if we're being honest about it. I think we see so much star power that our, our eyes we get stars in our eyes because it's great to see all these great names, but every team needs five. And some people are gonna rob from the pool and slot them at other positions, whether it's their utility or some guys who have dual eligibility elsewhere. So it, it, it's a tough pool. I was gonna like I said, I was gonna mention Ian Desmond, who I love, gets hit in the hand, has a fractured hand that's a huge bummer. I still think J.D. Martinez is underpriced in terms of a top-end guy. I think Gregory Polanco could have a massive breakout. I actually still really like the entire Pittsburgh outfield. Polanco, Marte on the upswing, uh, McCutcheon working his way back, but at a discount, uh, pick 69 right now, so that's pretty nice. Um, I think Justin Upton, uh, you know, I'm stuck with two teams right now, Detroit and Pittsburgh, but Justin Upton uh, got himself back on track. He had a tough transition to Detroit, but once it clicked, he looked like Justin Upton, and he's not expensive. Jumping down a bit more, uh, I, I actually <laughs> – this is a, a habit I need to break, but I still like Carlos Gomez because the the, the price is right for me. But uh, jumping down even 30, 30 picks away from him is Marcelo Zuna, who I absolutely love out in Miami. He was in the midst of his breakout season, Ross, and then uh, I believe it was a fractured hand injury really derailed his season. You can see the clear split in numbers before and after, but he has great defense, and that's going to kind of guarantee his time against righties because he, he, he struggles a little bit against righties and decimates lefties but i think the the playing time is guaranteed the power's there marcelo zuna is somebody i really like a couple names i'm not interested in yasmani tomas just doesn't do it for me i know he hit 30 something homers last year good for him he did make me look a little foolish because i was completely off on him and he had a good year i i just can't do it i think cal schwarber is heavily overpriced if you play at yahoo he qualifies at catcher that's a completely different equation i'm talking about most leagues where he's outfield only 
I do not see how Kyle Schwarber is any different from the likes of Chris Davis with a K, Jose Bautista, uh, Miguel Sano, and they're all going substantially after him, multiple rounds, two, three, four rounds. And so I just don't get the hype with Kyle Schwarber. He strikes out too much, and he can't hit lefties. Uh, what what are we really seeing here? Good Good power bat can do what those other guys do, which is 30-something homers and a 250 average, but I don't know how that's worth pick 78. Yeah, there are a couple of guys up top in that 100 range. Matt Kemp, not that valuable in real life, doesn't get on base, plays bad defense, but in fantasy, he's still a 3,500 guy. That's hard to get, especially where he's going. I like the value there around if you can get him after the 10th round. I think that's a good value there with Matt Kemp. Real late, I like guys like Keon Broxton, I like Byron Buxton, and I like Nomar Mazar's power potential a lot in Texas. Oh, that's uh, Nomar Mazar is one of my big ones. Uh, yeah, I was going to jump down to this next level here. I'll, I'll throw a couple other names in that same range with Mazara, Jock Peterson and Randall Grichuk. Um, I like all three of those guys. Mazara um, is a little bit hidden uh, in Texas, weirdly enough, even though he had kind of a strong uh, rookie season. Usually the fantasy community goes crazy for these guys who actually show that they can hang in the majors for a full season. Yet he's going after pick 200. Sign me up all day. Randall Grichik is a stat cast darling because he has immense power. Um, and and it, it costs nothing to take a gamble and say, hey, can he turn some of that into a little bit better batting average and 30-something home? homers i'm willing to see and jock peterson i've absolutely loved this is the kind of guy like addison russell where i'm not giving up even though i haven't seen major gains because this guy stole 30 bases per 600 plate appearances in the minors i think he's still learning how to steal against major leaguers and if he can add that to the power that we've already seen all of a sudden he becomes a 30 homer 15 steal potential guy bad batting average but if you're going to get the runs at the top of that order that's still a three category guy and he'll have decent rbi totals for a leadoff guy, so kind of a three-and-a-half category guy. And if you just cover his batting average for Jock Peterson, you're good to go. Let's go right into your wheelhouse with starting pitchers. Who do you like with starters? Who do you dislike? You had a great piece at Hardball Times last week about how starting pitchers are being overdrafted in general. Give me your thoughts on where they should be going and who do you like and who you dislike. Yeah, as I briefly mentioned earlier, I'm not really messing with the first three, four rounds of pitchers. Kershaw might be an exception. It depends who's available. If, if somebody like Bryce Harper, who's fallen a little bit, is still available, I'm probably still going to lean Harper over Kershaw, uh, thinking of like, you know, at, at pick seven or something in that scenario. And Kershaw's fallen there and Harper's still there. It's still a toss up. But uh, beyond that, the Scherzer, Bumgarner, Thor, it's not that they're bad. It's that I feel like I can replicate what they're able to do later on. So I jump all the way down and I start looking at at guys like uh, Cueto, Verlander, I think are underpriced aces. And then Chris Archer, I, I think is poised for a big bounce back. He struggled at times last year with command of both the slider and fastball, but this dude has premium stuff. He's shown the flashes of ace level potential. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in 2017. So I still like Chris Archer. Jacob deGrom looks like his ulnar nerve surgery is coming back really strong. Uh, not a lot to worry about there so far in spring. Another underpriced ace, but his price is rising. Then jumping down beyond pick 100, I love Danny Duffy. I feel like he's made kind of a Carlos Carrasco transition where he learned how, he got himself right in the bullpen and brought it all with him to the uh, to the rotation. So I'm a big fan of him. I think Michael Fulmer is somebody that some folks are running away from as as the rookie of the year because his his ERA indicators like the uh, FIP fielding into Independent pitching and XFIP, those sorts of factors are saying that he should have been in the upper threes and he had a 308 ERA. 
I agree. His ERA may regress to something like 340, 350, but he's going to add innings and strikeouts. This guy has devastating stuff, developed a split change last year that was not on his scouting report coming into the season. He was supposed to have power fastball, power slider. The fact that he developed that changeup is how he won rookie of the year. I already mentioned Kevin Gossman and James Paxton. Those are two of my big targets this year. Gossman's a repeat from last year. It's my last year with him, though. I'm not I'm not going to keep going here. I'm going to keep banging my head up against this wall. He took a step forward last year. It's time for the big breakout with Kevin Gossman. And what he really needs to do is keep the ball in the ballpark. And, and if he can't do that, I understand it's a difficult feat in the AL East and Baltimore, but other pitchers do it with his with the kind of devastating stuff that he has, and even some without that same devastating stuff. So if he can't keep the ball in the ballpark consistently, uh, it'll be my last year of projecting him to be a frontliner. Um, Lance McCullers Jr., immense talent major health concern but i think he's going late enough to where you can take that gamble i don't know how many names you want me to give ross because i can kind of keep going um matt moore I, I was in early on him i'm not usually in early on the rookies i, I usually want to see a little something but he was so crisp and looked so good looked so polished that i thought he was going to be ready from the jump got burnt there when he was in Tampa Bay and he never really put it together. I love anybody that goes out with Dave Rigetti, uh, Bruce Bochy and company and Buster Posey, of course, got to be mentioned in San Francisco. And I think Matt Moore's finally 50 years later going to have that breakout season that the, his proponents like myself have been calling for for several years. A couple more then I'll let you react and then we can get even deeper. Taiwan Walker had 10 bone spurs in his foot last year, which explains the second half collapse where he started giving up home runs left and right. He got those taken out posted a picture on instagram it looked nasty it looked like 10 like uh you remember the game jacks those little those little yeah. metal things <laughs> it looked like he had 10 jacks in his foot and, and I, if it, it was the pain of stepping on a single jack or a lego if, if you want a little bit more of a a, a new count new comparison that seems like madness i don't know how he even pitched let alone obviously he got trounced but i don't even know how he went out there so taiwan walker got that taken care of i did just get done mentioning how good arizona is as a hitter's ballpark but this dude has the stuff he has the stuff to be a frontliner so i think he can even overcome that ballpark uh and then one more before i, I let you, you you chime in here jarell cotton is a guy that uh i think i'm obligated working at Fangraphs to mention we all love him over there his changeup is absolutely devastating he had a really sexy uh september performance that has people geeked don't get too crazy on september performance but he's going so cheap pick 246 it's not like he's being overrated if he starts bumping up uh above pick 150 or something crazy like that then you have to back off of jarell cotton but right now going somewhere in the 200s i feel comfortable paying that price yeah i like cotton i like manea too but i like them both more if you're yes. really that uses quality starts instead of wins because i think wins are going to be hard to come by in oakland this year I like two old guys for the value late where you can get them. Felix Hernandez going around 125. You know, he added a lot of muscle mass. His velocity is up this so far in the spring. I think I don't yep. expect peak Felix from him, but I think if you can get a guy who is still very good at in the 12th or 13th round, I think you're getting a potential bargain there with him. And another old guy who I think is in good shape for a comeback is Adam Wainwright, who seems to have rediscovered his, his curveball. And I think if he's going around 175, that's a really good value to be had there. Yeah, when you said two old guys, I, I, wanted, I wanted to interrupt you and say, can I guess? Because I thought those were going to be the two. And I'm actually with you because the price is so low. It, it, it's weird. There are, two, there are two things about the fantasy baseball market 
that work, generally speaking, is that uh, if a prospect doesn't come up and dominate immediately, they are thrown to the trash bin. Uh, I referenced Matt Moore earlier. Go look at what – if you could look at historical draft positions, you, you would see how he completely fell off when he didn't you know, become Noah Syndergaard immediately. And then the older guys, uh, fantasy baseball – is enamored of young prospects before they do anything and is completely ageist towards anybody whose age starts with a three, especially if they've shown a little bit of, of, of wear and tear as both Hernandez and Wainwright did last year. But their prices are so low at this point, especially Wainwright, but even Hernandez, that I'm willing to, to, to dive back in. Felix Hernandez has lost velocity uh, you know, pretty steadily now for several years, to be honest. But his secondary stuff is so good that I really think he's still going to have a, a positive second act. He's kind of learning how to – Evolve with the with the velocity dip. I think if he goes more to a cutter, and so he puts a little bit of movement on his on his fastball as opposed to just going with a straight four seamer. I think he'll get himself back uh, back to a high level because that changeup is still absolutely devastating, and he's a total gamer. And I know things like gamer and and, and, and grit. That's not very fan graphs of me, but but you watch these guys and. They, they they care. So even though you know age and, and time are working against them, I don't think Felix Hernandez and Adam Wainwright are ready to just throw in the towel and say, okay, I'm a fifth starter now. So I think both can have bounce backs if they have health. And I know that's a big caveat for tons of pitchers, but if they're upright, I think both of them can be solid values. We're going to move over to relievers quickly. I've already taken extended time of yours, so I thank you for the extended time. But let's look at relievers. And I say this to everyone, people who are just starting in fantasy. People ask me for fantasy advice on occasion, and I say, look, you need saves. Don't punt saves. People that punt saves lose leagues. It is in a category. It is one of your five. It is one of the ten. You get points from it. You need saves. You need closers. If you are in a 10-team league, you should make it your goal to exit the draft with four closers. Not only do you have Mm -hmm. an advantage, you're putting somebody else at a disadvantage. Always end up with more closers than you think you need, as many of them lose their jobs anyway. I I couldn't agree with you more. And Jeff Zimmerman over at Fangraphs uh, did some excellent work on this uh, very recently. So I I can either send you the link or they could just go over to Fangraphs.com slash fantasy. Look for Jeff Zimmerman, and it's in his very recent pieces uh, uh, of kind of the closer volatility. And punting saves is just adding work in season because you're eventually going to give it up and say, oh, I need some saves now. And so you're going to have to be trying to get in on the on the next up-and-coming closers. And that is precious resources if you have limited pickups or, or, or a budget where you can only spend X amount of free agency dollars. And then you're going to have to divert all those resources to getting some saves. So I like to mess, like I mentioned earlier, I don't mind messing around with the upper end of the pool. And even if not, for this year in particular, the, the second and third tiers are really strong. I think Ken Giles is poised to finally have that big full season as closer. I absolutely love Kelvin Herrera's stuff. He's going to get the job in Kansas City with Wade Davis being traded. Uh, Edwin Diaz has a lot of folks excited. Cody Allen's price is depressed a bit with uh, Andrew Miller looming. But I, uh, Andrew Miller is going to steal some saves. Sure, absolutely, because they're going to have a le- you know three lefties coming up for a team. And so why not use him in the night that makes sense? But I still think there's room for Cody Allen to get 30 saves with great ratios and strikeouts, even if Andrew Miller steals 11. This uh, Cleveland's going to be a good team. The better teams have more save opportunities. So I have no problem taking somebody like that. And then as far as kind of a bad team sort of guy, uh, well, not necessarily bad. I know some of the projection systems like Tampa Bay. 
I'm dubious on how good they're going to be, but I think Alex Colome uh, showed some really strong stuff last year, and he could be a nice uh, asset in, in in that same middle tier. So I'm 100% with you on the, on the theory that do not punt saves. It, it is not worth your time. It creates extra work, especially if you're a multi-leaguer. If you play one league, that's awesome, and you can focus on it, and that could be your, your in-season move. But if not, you better get those saves because otherwise you're just adding work on the on your Sunday nights when you're going through your five, six leagues trying to do ad drops. I agree completely. And they're also the easiest thing to trade in any league. Everybody needs Bingo. closers at some point. They're an asset to trade, not just to get points, but you can trade them as well. And I'll say this, Andrew Miller's average draft position is higher than Cody Allen's on ESPN. That's a mistake. Miller is great in real life and he's more valuable in real life, but he is not going to get as many saves. If you are in a league that is just using saves and not using saves holds, Andrew Miller is not as valuable as Allen and Patances is being overdrafted too. Yes, those guys will lower your ERA and get you some Ks, but you want those saves coming from your relief spots you gotta get the saves and i like both of those guys in in various formats but i'm not going to overpay for them uh especially because they have rock solid guys especially batances you know chapman's there unless chapman gets hurt uh that, that nothing's happening there cody allen could falter and, and open the door for miller but again i just don't see it i think he's great as well one off the radar sort of name that i will give is jim johnson in atlanta i think they're going to be a, a solid unspectacular sort of team kind of a, a mid to upper 70s win team so they'll have enough opportunities and he was throwing the ball brilliantly toward the toward the end of the year last year back up at 95 96 with that devastating sinker uh keeping the ball down getting some strikeouts not great, not sexy. No one's going to go, ooh, ah, when you, when you pick Jim Johnson. But as your third closer or even your second closer, if you, if you go like Kenley Jansen and, and Jim Johnson in a 15-teamer in a where, you, where you can get by with just two closers, I've got no problem uh, rostering the, the aged Jim Johnson. So give me two guys that are not expected to open the season as closers who you think will eventually get those roles, get those saves. Nate Jones is, is a popular one, but I am going to go with it because I think David Robertson probably gets moved is, is, is the answer there. But if not, I, I think he could lose the job to Nate Jones. Both are already paid, too, so they don't have to worry about Nate Jones getting saves and, and increasing his price in arbitration. And then I think that Philly uh, scenario, Jamar Gomez, listen, I know he got the 30 saves last year, and, and I guess they're rewarding him for that. I, I, I can respect that. But Hector Neris is, is remarkably more talented than Jamar Gomez and even Joaquin Benoit, the the older guy, um, I think is a better fit there. So either way, I one of those two, maybe they want to keep Naris in a in an Andrew Miller kind of role. We're seeing this a little bit more, Ross, where teams are keeping their best reliever out of the uh, the ninth inning so that they can have him as the fireman, uh, like an Andrew Miller. So that could happen with Naris. But even then, I think Benoit is a much better option than Gomez. So keep an eye on that Philly bullpen. I think there's volatility. And then one other, I know you said two, but I'll give a firm name here. Matt Bush in Texas uh, has really gotten his life on track after some huge self-imposed mistakes with drinking. His life was spiraling out of control, and he's gotten it back on track, to now he's a useful uh, piece back in baseball after being a number one overall pick as a hitter. He's now a pitcher, and Sam Dyson is solid, but he's just not that dominant as a closer, and I think Matt Bush might be the better asset in the ninth inning. I agree with all those names, and I like Coda Glover as a late flyer, too. I think that that Washington bullpen is so unstable that he has a chance of getting that spot potentially in mid-May, and if he gets the primary closer job in Washington, he's going to rack up a lot of saves. 
Absolutely. I to- totally agree there. That, that spot's wide open. And if they don't get uh, somebody like David Robertson, they're going to have to turn in-house because I don't believe Sean Kelly can do it with his home run issues. You've been listening to Paul Spore. Paul is a writer at Fangraphs and Rotawire. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Spore, S-P-O-R-E-R. Paul, thanks so much for the extended time and for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Ross. I really appreciate it.